Derzor, silence and mystery, an absolute desert. I swallow the silence and I become its echo. The peaceful mask of the Euphrates has buried the true face of history, but I still hear from the waves of old tragedies the screams gathered under the marble of our sacred chapel. Their voices crystallize the message carved into uprooted cross stones. We do not rest in peace. We do not rest in peace. That was from Alicia Giragosian's poem, Der Zor, read by her daughter, Lara Vanyan Green. Hello, and welcome to Suwana Region Radio, a weekly review of politics and culture, bringing you the voices of the voiceless, from Kolkata to Casablanca. I am Ankina Antaram, and my co-host today is Soraya Zarouk. We are members of the South Asia, West Asia, and Northern Africa, or Suwana Collective here at KPFK. Thank you for tuning in. April 24th is Armenian Genocide Remembrance Day, and April more generally marks the commemoration of several genocides. The Holocaust, the Cambodian Genocide, the Rwandan Genocide, the Darfur Genocide, to name only a few. Today we ask, what happens when we look beyond statistics and official narratives about genocide and instead turn to poetry, film, and stories of resilience, resistance, and love to inform our approach? We are joined by Bared Maronian. Bared is executive producer at Armenian Productions and director of the films Orphans of the Genocide and Women of 1915, which documents the plight and survival of Armenian women during the genocide and the non-Armenian women who came to their rescue. We focus on Women of 1915 today. Bharat, thank you for joining us. Women in 1915 is the first film focused on women during the Armenian genocide. You have said that history has been focused on the men. Can you speak about that and why you decided to focus on the women? When the genocide was starting, it started by systematically dividing the Armenian family. What they did is they took the father of the family away from the family. So what was left was the women and the children. And when we say children, children were under 13, even children over 13 years old. 14, 15-year-old boys were also being considered as men, and they had the same fate as men did. What that fate was, they were either conscripted in the Turkish army forcibly, or they were outright killed, executed, and forced labor. And then they were tortured, of course. So basically, the family was divided. And once the family was broken, the head of the family happened to be the woman, the, the mother of the family, had to take over the responsibilities of the father and the mother. And it was a very difficult task. And that's why I decided to concentrate on the women on this film, Women of 1915, because there wasn't much talked about. Yes, there are a lot of, uh, a number of books about women during the genocide. But as far as the film, with a larger you know, scale about the genocide, there wasn't one. And it was, and I'm very happy to say that after Women of 1915, a lot of 
you know, books started being written on women after genocide. Again, I don't, I'm not saying there wasn't any, there were a number of them, but there weren't any, uh, I mean, it wasn't a trend, you know what I mean? It, it was somehow forgotten about. And, you know, unfortunately, that's how it is. And it's not only in, in the case of Armenians, it's in the case of any people. First, because mostly soldiers are, you know, men and uh, the defenders of the family or the country or the village are men. That's why I believe uh, the stories or the films were concentrating on the men mostly and not the women. But, you know, I discovered, especially when I was working on Orphans of the Genocide, that women were amazing part of the society then because not only did they witnessed their husband being killed in front of them, they were raped. And then after that, they had to take their responsibilities and take care of the children and not only be a mother to them, also a father. Plus, they were also the elderly of the house, the grandfathers and the grandmothers. So the burden of supporting the family was on the shoulders of the mother, the woman. I think the, the Armenian diaspora that we talk about today, the post-genocide community, the post-genocide Armenian societies around the world, Europe, Middle East, or, or United States, or Canada, or uh, Latin America, the reason we're alive today as Armenians, you know, like in my case, is because of the Armenian women, the survivors of the Armenian genocide, who resiliently survived and kept uh, a nation from, you know, being obliterated completely. One of the scholars you feature in the film, Nikki Marzek, says that, quote, sexual violence was not an afterthought. It was not peripheral to the main event. It was a fundamental component of the genocide. End of quote. Other experts agree. Can you speak about this and how you outlined it in your documentary? Definitely. See, rape was a tool of the genocide. Again, it was a systematic, planned way of killing a, a people, obliterating a people. What the Ottoman Turks did is they used rape as a means of humiliating the, the family members because uh, a lot of the times the rape took place in front of the family, in front of the village, in front of the, the neighbors, imagine they pull you out of your house and in front of your neighbors, they rape you because you're not a Turk, you're an Armenian, you're not one of them, you don't belong. There are other studies that say during the Armenian genocide, rape was used as a tool, you know, one of the tools of the genocide. And uh, again, despite all that, somehow with amazing resilience, of course, with help from, you know, humanitarian organizations, especially from the United States and Scandinavian countries, social workers, volunteers, missionaries. I'm so amazed by these women that in the young age of 19, 20, 21, a European, a Scandinavian woman would leave everything behind and decide to dedicate her life to save somebody else's life, you know. I mean, this was unbelievable to me. And that's, that was one of the reasons why I decided to do the film. I mean, uh, I mean the, the love of other, the love of somebody you don't know, you know, saving somebody that doesn't, has no connections with you. It's a different culture. 
you know, different part of the world. Imagine the plush life that they had in Europe, you know, in 1915 back then. And she leaves that behind, of course, compared to what was going on and goes to the fields of the genocide, you know, facing death, uh, rape. Some of them were raped. Some of them were killed. Some of them were infected by typhus and they died because they were saving people. It's unbelievable. I mean, these women were, to me, they were unsung heroes. You know, yeah, there were some books about them. Uh, the local people knew about them. Some Armenians knew about them. But it wasn't, and still now, even after my film, it's still, you know, it's a huge story that every single one of these women should be put on pedestals and be considered heroines of humanity. That's what I found actually so fascinating about the film is that you focus on the American and European women who, who, who made that journey to help the Armenian women. Um, can you say a little bit more about what you might now see as the collective impact of those women intervening into genocide? Um, and what was the response of the survivors to these women who came for them from so far away? You know, this uh, unconventional sisterhood came to being between two different types of members of society, a European and an Armenian. In most cases, they didn't even understand one another. They didn't even speak the same language. So what these women did is when they came, they re because it wasn't like a year or two, it was like decades of friendship, decades of relationship that started between these two the European and the American on one side and the Armenian women on the other. So they even opened up schools to teach these women English. You know, Armenians are known to be highly educated anyway. You know, since the 1800s, they, the tiny little villages, the farming, the farmers, you know, knew how to write, read and write. I'm talking in, you know, late uh, 1890s, beginning of the century, 1900s, you know, they were high, you know, high, highly educated compared even to European countries, you know. So uh, it was very easy for them to, uh, you know, acquire another language, learn another language, English, and they started, they, they became friends. And in some cases, after the genocide, after the armistice, I'm talking around uh, 1920s, 1920 to 25, or after Armenia became part of Soviet Union in 1927-28, when they had to flee, the Americans and the Europeans had to flee Armenia, some of them brought these women and children with them. They adopted them. You know, they brought them here and they kept them Armenian, which is very important. They didn't force them to be assimilated into you know, European or American culture. They let them be who they are and they made sure that they're married to Armenians. I mean, I'm not a sociologist, but I think there is a wealth of knowledge there that how two different types of people can become friends and you sacrifice your life or you're ready to sacrifice your life somebody that you don't know. During war, there is the, these two huge forces that always, you know, fight against one another. One is politics, one is humanity. The reason I'm here in the United States is because you know, my, my grandparents were thrown out of their homes and they lost family members. Otherwise, I was supposed to be in Armenia somewhere. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Yes, well, uh, and then let's look at some of these women. For example, 
let's start with Karen Yepe, and who I think was involved in rescuing abducted women. Please tell us her story. Karen Yepe is an, is an amazing case because she wasn't a missionary. She wasn't a volunteer. She was a social worker. You know, the idea of social worker, we, we got familiar with them maybe the last 30, 40 years. Maybe there was some before, but, you know, it wasn't that abundant. So in those times, this lady, Karen Yepe, was a social worker, and she was, you know, almost like a, she ran a business of saving women's lives. And another thing she did, by saying business, she didn't make any money out of it, but it was, she, she dealt it like a business. She, she was very organized. What she did is she found a way of convincing, okay, the local Muslim families who had taken in Armenian women by force sometimes, sometimes by, you know, in good faith, they saw these women roaming in the streets like 13, 14, 15 year old girls. They would take them into their families, but eventually one of their sons would marry her or, you know, because they're allowed to have more than one wife, they would make her their second wife. Karen Yepe, for example, created this uh, home shelter in, in these days understanding. She created this shelter of women she bought these women from the, the, the Muslim Bedouin or Turkish or Kurdish families. She bought them back after the war. She went there. She said, here is money for you. Here is gold. Give me this woman. You know, I want to take her back. She at one point created this militia. Not, I wouldn't call it militia, but armed men. Okay. She sent those armed men. And sometimes forcibly, if they didn't give these women back to them by buying, by bribing them, she forced them by these men, local Arab or Bedouin men, and uh, they went there with guns and they brought them back. But it's very interesting because sometimes these women would already consider themselves a part of the family. So there was this thing, dilemma, you're going to save this woman. And she says, well, I was with this family for 15 years and they were nice to me. I really don't want to come back. And especially in some cases, they had children. And there is this very interesting story. There is this Armenian woman who lost her husband. The Turkish gendarmes killed her husband in, in front of her. And they threw two of her children in a hole somewhere. And she couldn't reach the children. So she never knew if those two children survived or died of hunger or something. So she lost her family, her husband, her two children, right? And then she was one of those cases that was forcibly married into a, a Turkish or a Kurdish family, I don't remember. And she had two children from that guy. And uh, now her brother found her and wants to bring her back. She says, let's go, yeah, let's go home. You know, the war ended, the genocide is over. I know you have two kids here. I promise you we're gonna come back, take those two kids. But now you have to run away. So. <laughs> She believed her brother. She was saved from the family, but she left her children uh, behind. And she made it to France, eventually to Paris. And she never saw those two children. And I interviewed the brother. He said, every day, my sister would blame me for not bringing her two kids. You know, there are amazing stories there that they don't even have a good ending, of course. But there were some good endings too, because some of the, these women were reconnected with their families. The interesting is, thing is, everything by Karen Yepi was documented. 
their names, even their pictures, because she made fundraisers, she brought in some money, she hired photographers, and sometimes she married them. She found an, uh, an Armenian guy in the village. She took one of her women, you know, in the, from the shelter, made sure that they get married, start a family. It was a whole operation. So yeah, Karen Yepe was an amazing character and her nickname was the mother of Armenians. Can you talk a little bit about Maria Jakobsen um, and uh, her orphanage, the bird's nest? Maria Jacobson, I chose her to be the narrator of Women of 1915 because her, her experience with the Armenian genocide was a linear one. I mean, she even started helping the Armenians way before the genocide. And the reason for that was when she was 19 years old, she was praying one day in a church in Denmark, and she had a vision. She got this, you know, calling. It was a vocation for her. So she, at the early age of 19, she moved to Armenia and started saving orphans, helping women. And then she found herself at the height of the Armenian genocide. I mean, she saw every single thing that we can imagine that could have taken during the genocide, be it rape or killings or abductions and all that. She was one of those that dedicated her whole life to the Armenians because what she did after that, she went back to Denmark, raised some money because she had to flee. The Turks, you know, told her either you leave here or we kill you. So she had to flee at one point. And then she wanted to come back. She wasn't allowed. So she started raising funds and eventually she found herself in Lebanon, opened up the bird's nest there that is operational to this state. And she decided when she died to be buried there. That's another amazing story. That's Maria Jacobson. What did you learn about how women survived despite experiencing and witnessing horrible atrocities? And what role did women play in the post-genocide reconstruction of Armenian communities? A two-part question. No matter how much I know of research, it's, it won't be fair for me because I didn't experience what they experienced, but from based on what I know, you know, it's very easy for us to say they went through hell and they created a paradise out of hell. That's the best way that I look at it because I guess either they were desensitized to the situation or they got this superhuman powers in them that they were able, despite everything, concentrate on moving on, going forward. Some of them gave in. You know, there were two types of women that gave into the situation. One of them was they said, you know what, okay, I don't want to die myself because this Turkish guy tells her, the neighbor, you want to survive? If you convert to Islam and marry me, nothing's going to happen to you and you're going to be my wife and I'll take care of you. So some of them did that. Some refused. They said, you know what? I'm a Christian. I believe in my God. And they committed suicide. And the third type was because they had their children, you know, they, they had to take care of them. Those were the ones I think that perpetuated the uh, Armenian people. In Turkey, the ones who were married into forcibly sometimes, sometimes, you know, somewhat willingly marrying Turks to stay alive. About 20 years ago, 
people started coming out in Turkey. There was this openness at one point by Erdogan for a few years. And uh, people started to say that, hey, I found this documentation or I just realized that my grandmother is an Armenian and she showed me her Armenian Bible. She showed me the cross that she always at night prayed to, you know, that she was wearing the cross and she prayed to, even though she raised children and grandchildren as Muslims, as Turks. But there was this coming out of the closet thing for uh, pseudo-Armenians, you know, who were, you know, or hidden Armenians, you know, is, is a term that you, they use a lot about them. And it's estimated for those Armenians today in Turkey to be anywhere between two to four million, if not more. And some of them don't even know who they are. They don't even know that they have Armenian roots. So uh, they were very instrumental in the first communities after the genocide outs. I mean, and mind you, you know, normally if, if a war happens, it takes place in your place, the bombings and then stop, then you start rebuilding, right? But you're still on your land. In their case, they were somewhere else. They were all of a sudden in the Middle East that they were not familiar with. You know, they were in Lebanon, they were in Syria, they were in, in, in France. So they started a second life from nothing. After going through hell, they started building homes, churches, community centers, and a big portion of this was done by women. You know, women were the ones who took care of their children's education and, and uh, made sure that they keep, they perpetuate their you know, ethnicity, which was very difficult in, in a lot of uh, situations. So Bharat, where can people watch your film? You can watch that on Amazon. It's available on Amazon Video. You can, you know, do a quick search, Women of 1915. And also my Orphans of the Genocide is there too. I would please ask you if you watch it and if you like it, write a review because reviews and you know, are very important for the uh, distribution of the film. We get better distribution by reviews. Of course, if, you know, you like the film, I would appreciate if you do that. Thank you, Bharat. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Bharat Maronyan is executive producer at Armenoid Productions and director of the films Orphans of the Genocide and Women of 1915. For our next guest, we have Christopher Atamian, reading from Armenian poet Sion Montons, The Dance. Christopher is the author of A Poet in Washington Heights. The Dance by Siamanto. This story which I tell you, and which cannot be told, I saw with my cruel human eyes. That morning in death's shadow was a Sunday. The first and helpless Sunday which rose over the corpses when inside my room from evening to dawn bending over the agony of a girl slashed with a sword I was wetting her death with my tears. Suddenly from afar a black beastly mob brutally whipping the twenty brides who were with them stood in a vineyard singing songs of debauchery. Leaving the poor dying girl on her mattress I approached a balcony in my window which looked on hell in the vineyard, the black mob became a forest, a savage roared to the brides. You must dance, you must dance when our drum sounds. And the whip started wildly cracking on the bodies of the Armenian women who were missing death. 
Twenty brides, hand in hand, started their round dance. The tears flowed from their eyes like wounds. Oh, how much I envied my wounded neighbor, because I heard that with a peaceful moan, cursing the universe, the poor Armenian girl to her young dove spirit gave wings towards the stars. In vain I moved my fists against the mob. You must dance, roared the furious crowd. You must dance until you're deaf, lustfully and lasciviously. Our eyes are thirsty for your movements and your death. The twenty beautiful brides fell to the ground exhausted. Stand up, they shrieked, waving their naked swords with snake, like snakes. Then someone brought to the mob a barrel of oil. Oh, human justice, let me spit at your forehead. They anointed the twenty brides hastily with that liquid. You must dance, they roared. Here is a perfume for you which even Arabia does not have. Then they ignited the naked bodies of the brides with a torch, and the charcoal corpses rolled from dance to death. In my terror, I closed the shutters of my window like a storm, and approaching my lonely dead girl, I asked, how can I dig my eyes out? How can I dig them out? Tell me. That was Christopher Atamian reading Siamanto's The Dance. Christopher is the author of A Poet in Washington Heights. This is Tuana Region Radio, and today we have a special commemorating genocide. There is much to complicate about how we think about genocide, including the politics of naming and what gets counted as genocide and what does not. Joining us to discuss some of these issues now is Dr. Marie Berry, an associate professor at the Joseph Corbel School of International Studies at the University of Denver. She is a political sociologist who examines the political, economic, and social consequences of armed conflict. Her first book, War, Women, and Power, From Violence to Mobilization in Rwanda and Bosnia-Herzegovina, draws from over 260 interviews with women to investigate the impact of violence on women's political mobilization. Thank you for joining us, Marie. Thank you, Soraya. It's so wonderful to be here with you. Marie, how did you come to focus on your research on how violence impacts women during and after conflict? That's a great question. And there's, there's a few different versions of, of the answer, depending on the amount of time we have. <laughs> um, but I, I will, I'll, I'll tell sort of the, the mid-length version, which is that um, when I was in college, I was uh, able to, really fortunate to be able to intern and volunteer with a, um, uh, now it's called the Holocaust Center for Humanity. It's an organization based in Seattle um, that really has focused on um, bringing stories from survivors of the Nazi Holocaust to the broader public. Um, and I was really fortunate to get to work there and meet many men and women who had survived things that were to me completely unfathomable. Um, the loss of their families, their displacement from their homes, from their countries. Um, and I spent the kind of several years there getting to know their stories and getting to know them personally. And I was repeatedly struck both by their um, resilience and also by sometimes their humor as they were able to have perspective on you know how far they come on, on small joys in life, on the 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 um, the kind of ways in which their ability to build their families um, in the United States and in Seattle in particular had given them real um, real joy. Um, and you know, so this sort of built in me a recognition, I think, early on that 
in these periods of, of horrendous atrocities, which I had learned about in school and which unfortunately I was continuing to read about um, in the news far too frequently, um, there are so many um, stories of loss, of pain, of suffering. Um, and, and those are needing of our attention and our, and our energy. Um, but alongside those experiences of devastation um, and of suffering were also ones of, of, of joy, of survival, of creativity, of, of, of love. Um, and so it was sort of early on in my, in my kind of, um, in my life and in my career, um, that those, that duality, that, that idea that two things are simultaneously possible, both destruction and creativity, um, really was cemented as something that, that I was, that I was interested in, in understanding more. Um, and my, uh, early career after that sort of, um, landed me in Rwanda, where I also heard similar stories of the absolute devastation and pain and suffering of the 1994 genocide, um, and also heard these more hopeful stories about those who had survived, those who rescued others, those who mothered children who were not their children, um, and, and who had a hope in, in the future that it would be a better future. Um, and so this is, this is sort of where my interest in many of these questions and, and themes began. And when we want to come back and ask you to tell us some of those stories, um, much of the research on women in conflict says women are seen and treated differently, both during and after genocide. Can you speak about how the gender nature of violence impacts women and the forms of resistance and survival they choose? That's a, that's a powerful question. I remember sitting down with a woman named Ignatian in 2009 at the very, very early stages of my, um, of some of my uh, graduate research. And Ignatian told me about how in 1994, at the beginning of the genocide in Rwanda, she had been a housewife living in the south of, of the country. Um, and when the violence had broken out, many members of her family were killed. Her husband was killed and, and many of her siblings and, um, and, and um, her, her mother were, was also killed. And she found herself alone after the genocide. And she described to me in an interview, you know, you know, to, to do it, to survive, um, you, you know, you really don't have a choice. It's an obligation. You either do it or you die. You, you, you survive and you kind of put one foot in front of another um, or you die. And um, she described this experience of profound loss as one um, that also awoke a political consciousness in her, where she began to do work in her community to help orphans and other children who had been um, had kind of made homeless or, or orphaned by the violence. Um, she eventually found work with a larger organization to kind of scale this work. Um, she decided to go back to school so that she could be even more effective in doing this work. And then she eventually decided to run for political office. And when I met Ignatian in 2009, she was a member of Rwanda's parliament, um, which even today boasts the highest level of women in parliament of any country in the world. And I was interested and fascinated indeed by, by Ignatian's um, example, which to me upended many of the stories that I'd been told or that I'd, many of the kind of books I'd read, many of the newspaper articles that I had, um, you know, kind of devoured in my studies thus that far, um, because her, her story was one uh, in which she was absolutely, um, and, and, and would, would, would claim that she was a victim of the violence. 
she was a survivor of the genocide. Um, and at the same time, her experience was so much more multifaceted than one solely of um, widowhood. It was, of course, a story of widowhood. It was a story of the loss of one's parent and, and siblings. But it was more than that. It was also the story of kind of the awakening of her own kind of political commitments and consciousness because she recognized that the violence um, that, that, had, had, that had left her life kind of, you know, in, in shambles in a way um, was violence that she was not willing to see persist and that she was going to de dedicate really her, her life to, to trying to, to, to withstand those, those violent systems. And so I, I share Ignatian's story um, in many ways because I think it in, kind of um, captures the, 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 the multifaceted way in which women experience violence, um, especially during war and genocide. And, and this, um, this, these stories oftentimes, um, the stories of women in war, um, too, I think too often sometimes focus solely on this depiction of, of what some scholars have called women weeping women wringing hands, the sort of visual image of a woman um, in a refugee camp or huddled over her children um, who, is, who, is, who is emotionally um, experiencing trauma and sadness and, 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 and fear and exhaustion and all of the things that come with living and surviving, living through and surviving you know, violence. Um, and the, my research is really focused on, on, on those stories, but also what women are doing every other moment of the day, um, when they're not kind of, um, engaged in that period of suffering, what, what, are, what else are they doing? And what I, in my, um, in my, in my work, which has started in Rwanda, but, but extended, um, to Bosnia, Herzegovina, to Nepal, um, and I've been fortunate to work in collaboration, um, at collaborations in many other places, in, from Sri Lanka to Colombia to um, Israel and Palestine um, to um, other 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 contexts as well. And and these 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 kind of different experiences and the many women that I've had the the privilege to be able to talk to over the years really affirm the the way in which. Um, women experience violence in highly gendered ways um, and they experience survival in highly gendered ways in ways that oftentimes uh, can be politically constitutive and can be formative of of really launching new directions in their lives in the aftermath. I'm really struck by how the story that you just told imagines women in you know the everyday space but also you're telling stories of women who imagine a future and secure a future beyond these periods of violence. Um, but genocides are often spoken about as kind of being in the in the past tense, right? And some of them are, but some of them are occurring as we speak and others have yet to be acknowledged. Um, how are these stories helping us to sort of shift how we think about the time frame of genocide or even what gets counted as genocide and what doesn't? I think oftentimes of Rob Nixon's work on slow violence, the sort of slow moving, invisible, um, uh, kind of violence of toxicity, of, of the, um, the, the destruction of our ecosystems, of the kind of structural race, racist violence that, that leads to poorer health outcomes and trauma and kind of these ongoing ways in which people experience embodied suffering and pain. Um, and it, it's, it strikes me, it strikes me that we, you know, we are, I think, societally groomed towards the spectacular and towards paying attention to kind of the spectacular dynamics of violence 
are as human kind of human rights um, activists have long been kind of motivated and, and catalyzed by spectacular um, examples of violence not 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 in a in a in a bad way but we oftentimes by, by focusing our gaze I think primarily on the cases of you know exceedingly high death tolls that happen over a shortened period of time that happen under kind of the the the, the Western gaze in the in the presence of foreign correspondents these tend to be the cases in which kind of um, capture our moral um, commitment to uh, our moral kind of um, outrage um, and they are you know to use Judith Butler's words the, the the conflicts that we see as profoundly grievable they're more grievable perhaps than other forms of harm and of suffering and in my work one of the things that struck me multiple times is in speaking with a woman who has say survived um, uh, kind of horrendous violence in in the north of Uganda during the Lord's Resistance Army's um, reign there? How the the forms of, of of violence that they are experiencing in the moment were not necessarily linked to the war, but instead linked to kind of economic inequality or um, kind of the destruct the the you know the experience of natural disasters that were that was creating um, profound insecurity in their day to day life. And this this extends to through really all of the places that I've been able to to spend time um, in in Bosnia um, I did a project several years ago looking at whether or not Bosnian women felt like they were experiencing what they were at peace whether they'd found peace 20 plus years after the end of the Bosnian War after the signing of the Dayton Accords that was this kind of you know internationally orchestrated um, peace agreement um, and and governance overhaul um and what struck me so often in these stories was how they don't feel peace in their lives um but as you know one one woman put it to me um when i look down my row of houses in my neighborhood every other house is empty my family is scattered they are settled in australia in belgium and the united states there is no peace when i don't have when i don't have my place and my community right um another spoke about how and this is um uh, kind of thinking about a, a woman i met in nepal who had been displaced from her home because of fighting um, in the far west between the government and the Maoists, who talked about how there is no peace in her life because she doesn't know where her children's next meal is going to come from. She doesn't know whether her children will ever get a job. And so we see in these examples the way in which the, the structure of the economy has, has, has created a profound sense of insecurity for women that is, of course, linked in some ways to the to the political cleavage of the conflict um, and, the, and the dynamics of war, but is also separate from that and is, 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 and is yet causing this, this, this fear in women's lives and, and bodies um, that they find to be more um, worrisome um, than, than uh, a, a, a risk of a resurgence of violence or the kind of ongoing sense that they have never gotten justice for the loss of their, of their um, husband or, or father or, or, or other family members. And so I think, Soraya, you know, um, there's so many layers to the question you asked, but I am interested in temporality as something that too often shapes our kind of 
our attention to a certain hierarchy of harm, how we see certain um, examples of conflict to be more kind of deserving of our of our mobilization and our um, and our, our advocacy and our attention. And yet we let the structures that are causing profound violence in people's lives persist relatively unchallenged. Um, and I see this kind of in, in the current conversations in the US around um, policing and around the carceral state and the way in which we kind of a lot of anti-war and anti-genocide human rights advocates have really neglected the the especially white activists have neglected the fact that we have a a kind of a, a violent carceral system prison industrial complex system in the states that causes similar amounts of violence and trauma and fear in people's lives and 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 bodies that other kind of more militarized if you will um more acute periods of militarization have have and those have perhaps been the, the focus of our attention so I, I call oftentimes for a recentering of the structures that are causing violence rather than the kind of events that we see in the news um, because i think there we actually get on better footing to think about how to dismantle those structures so that violence of all forms is is not a part of our future and Marie, how can stories generally, and stories you documented, help us approach current mass atrocities, crimes against humanity, and even a situation like the pandemic? How do stories deliver something that numbers cannot? I'm thinking of a story that I was I was rereading recently and kind of revisiting about a woman named Linda, who I interviewed years ago in Rwanda who had survived the genocide, um, although she still suffers to this day from profound physical disabilities because um, during the during the violence she um, she was Tutsi, she fled the city that she was living in, um, her husband was killed and in, really in fear and in trying to survive. Linda stayed in the bush for several weeks where she didn't move and she didn't eat or drink and she um, experienced the kind of atrophying of, of, her, of her muscles and she's never really fully been able to gain, um, gain her, her, her strength and her health back. Um, and she described to me how in the aftermath of the violence, she really had lost hope. I mean, she, she was extremely, extremely traumatized and depressed. Um, but she began to notice other women in her community who came together to really to console themselves in community. Um, and to console themselves by connecting person to person. Um, and and she, she grew a bit stronger and began to join them, began to join them regularly and, and found the, the ability to connect and create solidarity with these women to be um, the thing that kept her alive. And, and I always, it always reminds me of what Jan Patochka has, has written about or called a solidarity of the shaken, a solidarity forged among those who understand really intimately what life and death are all about. And to me, the solidarity of the shaken is something that we, we can see in the stories of survival and stories of resilience from so many of these of places that have been ravaged by horrific violence. Um, and, and I think that solidarity is politically substantive. Like, I think that that, um, that commitment to, to um, connection, to relation, to developing community, to um, seeing in, in someone else's suffering um, uh, something that is um, deserving of care. Um, I see these these 
these things as what I I see as connected to a a shift in how we might think about um, an anti-war, anti-genocide human rights advocacy. And I think so often we think about advocacy as trying to end the conflict that is currently ongoing or to slowly sort of work on eroding, say, U.S. kind of military might around the world. Um, but really, we tend to focus on, um, um, you know, kind of um, ending or kind of countering the atrocities that we see in the world. And, and for me, I think all of that is essential, necessary, and important, but it's also um, it, you know, kind of inherently insufficient to build a world in which more people are more free from all forms of, of oppression and harm. So, so I, I, I oftentimes rely on bell hooks um, and, and, and her kind of thinking and theorizing about the power of love and what, it, what, it, what a politics of love really looks like. And I oftentimes think that what these stories I've, I've heard um, over the years have taught me is that I should shift my gaze from thinking about how to prevent, how to kind of end violence that I see unfolding, but instead towards how to cultivate more loving communities, more equitable and just communities. Um, and, and, you know, Bell Hooks talks about what it means to have an ethic of love. An ethic of love is one that resists a politic of domination. And, and she talks about, you know, without this ethic of love shaping the direction of our political vision and our radical aspirations, we are often seduced, I'm using her words here, a direct quote, um, in, where we are often seduced in one way or the other into continued allegiance to systems of domination, imperialism, sexism, racism, classism. And, and to me, that idea that cultivating an ethic of love is actually a way of beginning to resist those structures that are that are really at the root of so many forms of violence and oppression in the world, whether they are the, the more spectacular, egregious um, forms of violence that we see on the nightly news, or whether they are the more embedded, entrenched forms of violence that we see in the destruction of our climate, in the extraction of resources from the earth, in the in the kind of um, the brutalities of capitalism in which people have been relegated to this kind of unwinnable um, economic position in which we see kind of racist and supremacy, um, racism and supremacy um, creating these, these again, hierarchies of, of access and of power. Um, to me, the kind of politic of love is one that, that, that can be embedded in individual praxis. It can be embedded and invested in terms of our way of thinking about community building, a way of thinking about movement building, a way of thinking about rooting our power kind of in communities of the marginalized and the disenfranchised. Um, and, and, and by cultivating that, I think we change the type of work that we do um, in the in the kind of geno genocide anti-atrocity space. We we focus left less on reacting and more on building and on creating. And in many ways, that is actually the, the initial story that many of these Holocaust survivors that I met early on in my career taught me. Um, that it wasn't only about what had happened to them, you know, taught us about this horrific period in history, but what stuck and what stuck and what they wanted to share oftentimes were these moments of, 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 of kind of brief joy. I remember speaking to a woman in Bosnia who was one of the few women who had been detained in a concentration camp um, and subjected to horrific um, sexual torture. She, she described to me that happened, but sometimes we also would sing in the camp.
right? Sometimes we would say one time somebody snuck in an onion and we peeled this onion like it was the most glorious fruit. Um, and we ate this onion because it was fresh and it was from the earth. And this was like the thing, these were the things, the stories that she told me. I, so many of the people in Bosnia that I've spoken with talk about the theater, the way in which the art scene in Sarajevo flourished during the violence um, and how the, the, the just simply the act of going to the theater of participating in the theater of 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 of, of watching the kind of over a hundred plays that premiered in Sarajevo during the siege that this in itself this kind of this participation in creativity was a rejection of the war logic it was about embracing love in community and in relations as a way of thwarting the kind of ethno-nationalist violence of the political moment and of the war writ large. And, and I, for me, I think that's politically formative and substantive. And I think that for me, that's really what, what I take away from, 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 from this work. It's a, it's a repositioning of, of where the focus is. It's recentering of certain stories um, in, our, in, our, in, our, in our thinking about, about really at the core, how do we build a world that is more free for more people? Marie, that is so interesting, bringing bell hooks and the politics of love into this. How do you apply politics of love here? Uh, maybe you can leave us with a story that has stayed with you. Well, maybe I'll, I'll start by telling you maybe my favorite love story of all time, which I've told before and which I learned through the people you know who shared it with me. It's a story about Klaus and Paula Stern who were two German Jews who were living on a farm. They were married, I believe, when they were about 19, when the Nazi regime came to power and World War II broke out. And they were eventually uh, rounded up and put on a train and sent to Auschwitz. And what they had talked about once was their deep love and commitment to each other. And that if they ever got separated, which at the time they really didn't believe they would ever be separated, they would meet in Paula's hometown, which was in the east of Germany, a very small town where you could kind of find another person because it was so small. This mentioned this casually once, and eventually, I believe it was in 1942, they were sent to Auschwitz, they were separated, and for the next three years, they were subjected to absolutely you know, degrading, dehumanizing treatment and brutal physical labor that, that worked them to the bone, especially Klaus, who was transferred to five different camps under excruciating conditions, he became very ill and very thin. And during this period of time, they had absolutely no knowledge of whether anyone else in their family was alive, whether each other was alive or anything else. And Klaus was ultimately um, liberated while he was on a death march. He, was, he had been basically pushed out and forced to walk. And many, many mem members of the march died of the elements and of everything else. And he was eventually liberated and found himself in a hospital where he was just in, in excruciating condition. He tells the story about how all he could think about was Paula. The whole time, the thing that kept him alive was this, this fundamental belief that he was going to see his love again. And he believed that she was alive. He didn't doubt for a second she was alive, even though it really, in, in retrospect, all of the things um, would have led to much more pessimism, I think, in myself um, than Klaus had. And he wrote Paula this letter, which he wrote with pencil, which was like a source of hilarity to them years later, because this letter was passed through hands and hands and hands and hands by the time it eventually got to Paula's hometown. It was a blank piece of paper because the pencil had worn away um, by all the hands that had touched it. And it basically said, Paula, I'm alive. I'm coming. And it took Klaus three weeks after he was dismissed from the hospital via walking and trains and every other sort of mode of transportation to finally end up 
in Paula's hometown. And she was there and she was waiting for him. They were the first survivor couple to end up in Seattle after World War II. They arrived in 1946 and they built a lovely life together. They had children and they had lost every other member of their family, more or less. But they built a new community in Seattle. The sense of love and devotion that they had to each other reminds me a lot of Viktor Frankl and Man's Search for Meeting. This idea that if we're able to understand the why about we are living, we can get through the how because Klaus never learned how to drive. Um, so I would often pick him up and take him to his different speaking events. And, and a lot of other people sort of made fun of him. They were like, you know, you were pretty young when you got here. You never learned how to drive. It's America, you know, but there's not great public transportation. You, you should learn how to drive. And he was like, you know, I know how to drive my wife crazy every night. And it was this like playful way of reminding everybody that all that really mattered was them that they found in each other the companionship and the love that allowed them to build life together Klaus passed away several years ago but paula is still alive i think about their story as a way of remembering how people are not only victims flat and kind of flattened um, as whole people after they've survived something that is unfathomably horrible Instead, they are human beings capable of having this kind of multiple sort of sense of commitments and, and of joy. And, and Klaus, of course, began telling his story because he saw the other periods. He saw what happened in Cambodia. He saw what happened in Rwanda. And he just could not believe that what had happened to him and his entire family was still going on in the world. And I think, you know, that sense of perspective really also drove his perseverance and his commitment um, to sharing a story, including a story of love. It really is a beautiful love story. Thank you for sharing these insights with us, Marie. Marie Berry is Associate Professor at the Joseph Corbel School of International Studies at the University of Denver. Her first book, War, Women, and Power, From Violence to Mobilization in Rwanda and Bosnia-Herzegovina, draws from over 260 interviews with women to investigate the impact of violence on women's political mobilization. We close with Alisa Giragosia's poem, Der Zor, read by her daughter, Lara Vanyan Green. The desert burns my feet, standing on the ashes of our fathers. If only I could cure one single pain, but how and with what strength could I root out this endless anguish? Dense furies harden in my throat. I want to shout, stand up, Stand up within my soul so that I can soothe the ice of the world with my warm breath. Enter the altar built by our people through eternity to heal our orphaned roots and destroy the evidence of torture. Plow through the desert and stand up so that today, at this very moment, we can march together to retrieve all the scattered voices of the earth and compose the loudest song of justice. Holding hands with old blood and different skin, climb up the rays of the sun to a clear time in a heaven with opened arms so we can weave a future smile and the bells can toll to welcome a new hallelujah. That our ancestors have been resurrected. That our people can now renew the dusty volumes of history. 
and baptize our own existence to usher in a new life. That was from Alisa Geragosian's poem, There's Zor, read by her daughter, Lara Vanyan Green. That is all the time we have today. We give special thanks to Barad Moronian, Marie Berry, Lara Vanyan Green, and Christopher Atamian, and the poets whose work they read, Alicia Geragosian and Siamanto. On behalf of my co-host, Ankina Antaram, and the Swana Region Radio Collective, I am Soraya Zarouf. Mm-hmm.